This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Anna Malika Tubbs, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your book, The Three Mothers, is just out in paperback, and it is our January monthly pick for nonfiction. And we are so excited for readers to learn a little bit more about the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin, because the subtitle of The Three Mothers is How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. How did this book start for you? I just want to say, first of all, thank you for choosing the book. Thank you for featuring it and helping me get these names out even more into the world. It is crucial that everyone know the names Alberta King, Louise Little, Bertus Baldwin. And in this conversation, hopefully everyone will walk away knowing why they should know those names. There are so many things I think that lead to any major accomplishment for all of us. You know, I could go all the way back and talk about my own mom and her power and presence and her telling me the importance of mothers in our society and the treatment of mothers being a gauge for how that society will do, et cetera. But I won't get into that too much. I'll fast forward and say that when I started my PhD at the University of Cambridge, I was really inspired by other scholars who were correcting the erasure of Black women and the erasure of their contributions and the erasure of them in our stories. Specifically, two very important scholars, Margot Lee Shetterly and her book, Hidden Figures, which became, of course, this blockbuster. The book itself and the research that she did to reclaim these narratives and make sure that the truth was being told about the brains behind NASA, Black women, and making it very clear that it wasn't a mistake that their contributions had been erased, but that it was an intentional erasure because it didn't necessarily fit what we typically say are the leaders of our story and the heroes of our stories and how that reclamation of that story changed everything. Not only our understanding of these women, but of our entire country and of our history. And I left that book feeling so inspired and infuriated and wanting to be someone who did something very similar. The second book that was really empowering for me was The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. And the claim that she's making that without understanding this crucial part of Black American history, you don't understand American history, that you need to know the Great Migration and the stories of great migrants to better understand how we've arrived where we are today as the United States of America. And the way she told that story with three different people who didn't actually know each other, but who were brought together through an experience that brought them together, whether they were from different backgrounds, etc. So I wanted to do something that was similar to both of these books. And I chose to focus on motherhood and this role that I believe is overlooked and unappreciated in our society, while also correcting the erasure of Black women's stories and using a hook that I thought would bring a lot more people to the story, which was, of course, Malcolm X, MLK Jr., James Baldwin. We seem to never tire of books about them, but this way I could add a new layer to it and everyone would walk away knowing more Black women's names. And given how well-documented their lives are, I mean, I'm just looking at my own coffee table and there are 15 books. Their stories either got, I don't want to say manipulated, but weren't necessarily told exactly in keeping with the historical record because they're women, because they're moms, because they became afterthoughts. So you really had to do a lot of digging in first person source material. Yeah. 
Absolutely. There was so much complication surrounding this project because while I was inspired by these two books that I mentioned, I had the challenge of not being able to interview the women who I was writing about. And I also only had records that were mainly kept by men. Um, So even, you know, that stack of books that you're referencing they're written almost entirely by men. And so that perspective of even those small bits and pieces, if the mothers are mentioned at all, they're likely taken out of context or misinterpreted. So for example, with Louise Little, before my book, there wasn't much out there about her, but if there was something, it was completely inaccurate. So it was said that she had quote unquote gone crazy and how sad it was that she went crazy, was institutionalized, and therefore her children were taken away from her. Um, So even that kind of quote unquote fact, I had to investigate and say, from my perspective as a black woman, as a black mother, I feel like there's a little bit more to this story and I I need to figure out what that is. Um, And in order to do that, I had to go to scholars who were experts in the men. I had to reach out to local historians in the various places where the women lived. I had to try to find birth certificates, land deeds, death certificates, not only for the women, but for their family members. There were so many holes that I had to fill and kind of correct the narrative. And just to bring this one full circle with Louise Little as an example, what happened was that she was an activist. She was loud and proud about speaking against white supremacy and for Black independence and Black self-sufficiency. Her husband was murdered because they were both organizers, both activists, both trying to agitate the state of the United States of America, and they were Marcus Garvey followers. And so when her husband is murdered and she's widowed at the young age of 30 and she has eight children, the state really frowns upon this, that she still is trying to claim her independence and she doesn't want to depend on what she would say was her white oppressor. And they send a white male physician to evaluate her who concludes that she's experiencing dementia based off of, and this is a quote from the doctor's note, that she is imagining being discriminated against. So in history, we've said she quote unquote went crazy, but in reality, this is both a racist and sexist attack against a powerful woman and an attempt to keep her from speaking her truth. This is a woman who, when the Black Legion, which is the equivalent of the KKK in Michigan, shows up on her doorstep, she is heavily pregnant with the baby that will go on to become Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. the other tiny siblings around her. And she simply stands on her doorstep and she does not give in to these men. She faces down men who would be quite content to do serious harm to her and her family and certainly her husband who wasn't there at the moment. And I think that may have alleviated some of the situation for them. Yeah. And here she is hospitalized, her children are taken away. And in fact, in 1997, the state of Michigan sent a bill to the surviving family members saying, you owe us $13,000 to the care your mother received while she was institutionalized in the 1930s. 60 years later, essentially, they send a bill saying, oh, we've noticed that maybe there's some book royalties and we would like you to reimburse us for this. Basically. And the way I put it is that that attack against her and her family that also took place, again, not only in the murder of her husband and in her institutionalization, but also even before that, their house being burned down continues even posthumously for her, that the state continues to try to control her and control her narrative and control her descendants. You have a line in the book that I really love. Alberta, Berdus, and Louise teach their modern readers that there's no single way to be a Black woman and no single way to be a Black mother. 
and that they are challenging assumptions, stereotypes, and categorizations. And certainly that's a great example of Louise's story. But I want to come to Alberta King for a second, because I don't think I was fully aware of how much she helped her husband become Martin Luther King Sr., Mm -hmm. who also ended up in the pulpit at Ebenezer Baptist, where Alberta's dad had been the pastor and obviously where her son would become the pastor as well. She doesn't quite get enough credit. (laughs) None of them do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But she seems kind of significantly overlooked because of the role she had in helping her husband Mm -hmm. accomplish the very basics of his education to get to the point where he can even become a pastor. And again, we look at the documentation of MLK Jr.'s life and certainly Coretta's in a similar situation to Alberta, we keep doing this again and again. Yes. And it's interesting because even if you read MLK Sr.'s autobiography. And I should say, when I'm saying we need to add women's narratives to our general understanding of these families and our understanding of American history, it's not because I want to replace the men. It's not because I'm saying the men are unimportant, but because even if you believe the men are important, you want to better understand them. And without understanding these women, you really don't have a full appreciation of who they were either. And so it's not only a correction for the women, it's not only about humanizing the women, but also humanizing Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. as well as Martin Luther King Jr. And he will say even in his autobiography, he says he could not have been who he was without who he calls Bunch. His Bunch of Goodness was his nickname for her. He says in his own words that he was only a green country boy when he met her. And she was the Alberta Williams, the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist Church. This is another misunderstanding that we've had in history. Quite often people will say that Ebenezer Baptist Church was Reverend Martin Luther King Sr.'s church. While that is part of the the answer, the truth is this was actually their church through Alberta's parents. They are the ones who made it what it is to this day, this beacon of hope in social justice and Christian faith being intertwined and how we allow others to follow, you know, this Christian belief that you have to try to make God's will what he wanted here on this planet, that people would be treated equally, that people would be treated justly. This is what Alberta's parents taught her from the moment she was born. So she grows up attending marches. She grows up participating in boycotts. She attends some of the very first meetings of the NAACP alongside her parents. So when she meets, he called himself the screen country boy. It's almost kind of a fluke that she does love him back because Alberta Williams, has a degree already. She's college educated and he would have been considered illiterate. He didn't have the same opportunities that her family had afforded her. And instead of her thinking, oh, I'm too good for him. She says, well, I do love you, but there are things that you're going to have to do. I've been taught that education is crucial for our freedom. Not that it makes us better, but instead that it's a tool that we can use to advance freedom causes. So I want to help you do that. All the men in Alberta's family go to Morehouse. And so she advocates for this partner of hers to get into Morehouse. She is a teacher herself. This is what she's trained to do. So for me, it's not surprising that right after meeting her, he gets into Morehouse and My opinion is that she tutors him through his education because he ends up graduating and he then becomes this powerful orator as well. So it's not to rob from his accomplishment and his ability to do what he did so well, but even he would tell you and you can read it in his own words, it's all because of Alberta. And Burtis, 
her son, James Baldwin, famously left the U.S., for a decade, went to Paris. And I asked Eddie Gloud on an earlier episode of the show, I said, so really, why did he come home? He came home in 57. And Professor Gloud's answer was pretty simple. He just said, mama. And then he followed up with the rest of it. But really, it was Burtis that brought James Baldwin home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We even see that in Baldwin's writings. There's the story where he's put in jail for the night. There's a, it's a whole long story. If you don't know it, you'll have to look it up. But you know that he had stolen some sheets, but it was actually a that had done it. Anyways, while he is behind bars, he's thinking because it's around the holidays and Burtis was born on Christmas Day, actually. And that's when they would celebrate her birthday anyways. And he's saying that he misses his mother and he misses her home cooking. And he's just really reminiscing. He is so close to his mom as her firstborn. They kind of share this bond of having experienced the pain of her abusive husband and James's abusive stepfather. But he sees himself as his mother's confidant, as well as she being that for him. And they are by each other's side through these years and years. So being apart from her is incredibly difficult. Even when he decides that he's going to leave and pursue this career of writing and and take the opportunity of a fellowship abroad in France, his moment where he feels most nervous is walking up to tell his mom that he's going to be leaving. As I was rereading your book this weekend in preparation for this interview, a lot of things jumped out, especially in relation to Woodrow Wilson and 1913, when we find America becoming increasingly segregated, aggressively so. We also see the conversations about Black freedom increasing as a result. We also see a great deal of violence in the wake of 1913, and certainly in, in the wake of World War I. And to give that a little more context, there were many more job opportunities for Black Americans during World War I, but at the same time, veterans who came back from fighting were attacked. And there was this terrible summer, the Red Summer of 1918, where Black veterans were just simply attacked for being in uniform, for having mm-hmm. served their country. It feels like we haven't made a lot of progress in this particular moment, it feels like we are reliving, not quite like Groundhog Day, but it feels a little bit like we are in a pattern. Right. Certainly there are some historians and some journalists who would say it's the cycles of American history and they are absolutely right. But it felt like we had started to make some progress with reconstruction and then that all abruptly is blown up. And then we started to make some progress again, around World War I and job opportunities, and that blows up again, and World War II and the Great Migration, and then certainly the civil rights movement. And we have these moments where progress seems to happen, and then the reaction to that progress Mm -hmm. is brutal. Yeah. There's a lot that I think of, but definitely if we haven't read White Rage, that is crucial in understanding this cycle of the kind of back and forth and the response to the progress of those who have been oppressed and who refuse to be subjected to that and continue to speak our truth and continue to fight against this. And specifically leading up to the moment that 
Trump becomes president and how this is framed as a response to having a Black president for the first time. And I struggle with this because as much as it can feel so exhausting that we are still fighting the same battles and that it feels like we're on this cycle without any progress, it's hard for me to say that after studying these three women and the conditions in which they lived. While in many ways, I do relate to the fear they experienced as Black mothers. And I speak very specifically about that in the book, that it's a crime that I still relate to the fear that they felt for themselves as well as for their children. At the same time, I also can't disrespect what they were able to accomplish by saying that we're in the exact same place that we were then. In my opinion, that erases so much important progress. And I do believe that people of color in the United States and those who have stood for justice and stood for equality and equity have made incredible strides and have pushed this nation in ways that even 10 years ago before whatever it was that we were doing 10 years ago seemed unimaginable. And I find it inspiring, truly. I'm I'm not inspired, I would say, by, you know, the Constitution. I'm not inspired by the laws that have put us where we are right now. What I am inspired by are those who continue to fight no matter what. And we wouldn't be able to continue fighting if we believed that we hadn't moved even at least an inch. So I I think it's a way of us honoring all those who have fought before us. And it gives us that additional impetus and motivation to say we are doing something that matters right now. Because unfortunately, if we think we're on the same cycle, that's just another way of getting us to give up, I think. So from my perspective, maybe the progress isn't fast enough, but from what we've been dealt and what we've turned it into. And this book is all about that, the life that is created, not only through children, but through our activism and through our writing and through our passion and talents is incredibly beautiful, incredibly inspiring and moving with such force that it cannot be questioned. And Louise and Alberta and Veritas, they all believed in education for all of their children, daughters included. Yes. Which for the time is a radical enough idea. I mean, the fact that Alberta had gone to college was radical for the time. Yeah. And it shows up, obviously, in the work of their sons. I mean, they're all amazing writers, amazing speakers. How do we take that emphasis on education and bring it back? Public education is in a precarious place right now. Mm -hmm. In the United States, it's under attack in ways that are not shocking, but disappointing. How do we put the value back Mm. in education? Such a good question and such an important one for this moment. And a great segue from what we were just discussing in terms of how we're fighting and what we're fighting, because that cycle of the strategies to continue to make us scared to continue to silence us. They are taking new forms, but it's coming from the same root of dehumanizing and subjecting us to be below who we are and what we are. And so that's why it's easy for us, those of us who are identifying these moments of dehumanization and control to see it in its various forms, you know? So if it's presented as, oh, we just want to change the curriculum, we're going to quickly say, no, you're trying to just repeat the cycle. If you want to call it 
whatever, and you're against critical race theory, we can quickly say we're not going to get distracted by all these technicalities that you're using. What you're trying to do is dehumanize us and take away our rights and take away our history. And through taking away our history, make it so that we're all confused about how we arrived where we are today. But we're not allowing that to happen. So that's one sentiment that comes up for me with that question. The second is that it's a reminder to us that public education is crucial. Yet we also have to think about how, especially in the case of Black mothers, they have created their own spaces of education and their own ways of educating and fighting those systems, even within as well as outside of those systems. And it's, it's really important that we acknowledge those efforts and that we can put power behind it. We won't be controlled by just one system. And we do need to make sure that we're still keeping other modes of education strong and supported while saying that it is crucial on every level when we're thinking about who we're electing in local office. This is really what it comes down to with schools. It's school boards. It's who is on our council. That is where local elections really count because those are the people who get to determine what will or will not be in our curriculum. So there's a lot of layers to it, but I think it's all part of that fight and being aware that this is strategic, it is not random, and it's part of the thing that we've been fighting all along. We've been taking this conversation sort of to a macro level, but that is the legacy of Alberta and Bertus and Louise. They were very clear that education was key for their children, that it was key for them, that they were part of a community, that there was a narrative that was larger than their personal stories. Absolutely. And I think we need to always hold that tight. Yeah. By bringing it back to them, we see really direct examples of how one, they tell their children, okay, here are you know systems of education that I'm going to put you in. Here's a formal education that they also, all three of them were able to, to benefit from to a certain extent. But they also say, I'm going to make sure I walk you through this and I'm right by your side because they're going to try to lie to you. They're going to try to tell you things that are maybe not the way that we remember our history. So I will also educate you alongside it. It's also important to remember for instance, with James Baldwin, he enters school a great writer. You know, his teachers say from the beginning, he's both the poorest as well as the smartest kid in our school. But rarely have we wondered, how did he just all of a sudden become a great writer? It's because his mother was a great writer and she's teaching him in her home. And he doesn't even get to go to college. That's not a privilege that James Baldwin is able to enjoy, but he still is obviously one of the most brilliant minds that this world has ever seen. So again, we're having this balance between formal forms of education as well as education that's happening outside of these spaces. And with Louise Little, she wants her children in school, but as soon as they get back, she sits them down at the kitchen table every single day, asks them what they were taught, and she corrects moments where she says, actually, here's our history, or here's a newspaper that you could find abroad. And I want you to know that we are part of a much larger movement that is not only happening in the United States, but is happening all over the world. And then Alberta, who is a trained educator and has a teaching certificate and has a bachelor's degree, but who is kept from being able to teach formally because of a law that stated that married women could not teach, she takes those skills and employs them in her teaching 
teaching of music and in her teaching of instruments, of singing, of sitting down again at the table with her children and saying, what are you learning? And here's what our elders in our community think about that. Or here's what our faith tells us. So you just see so many different examples of education and it really expands what the term means. And we've talked a little bit about the challenges that you faced collecting all of this information, processing this information, fitting it into the narrative. I mean, was there just a pure moment of joy (laughs) when you were writing this book? There were a lot of moments of joy. And I'm so grateful you brought that up because yes, this is a hard book to read. We're talking about Black women's history. And I don't think that dehumanization is anywhere more obvious than it is when you look at Black motherhood in the United States. It's hard. That part is painful. But what I'm more interested in highlighting is the power that Black mothers are able to profess and show and teach. And that's not to celebrate the strong Black woman trope. I also have something to say about that. But it's instead to say, how have we taken this treatment and created something else and said, we will not see ourselves in the way that you want us to, but we will instead show you the way we see the world and help you to get there to this vision of something greater and the possibilities of a world that we envision for ourselves, for our children, for everyone that we we touch and that we impact. So all of that is what I'm much more <laughs> inspired by. And those joyful moments continued to pop up as a result of that. So You know, even when I was reading one account, a principal of one of James Baldwin's schools says it was clear who James Baldwin had inherited his writing gifts from. And she can tell that Burtis was a great writer simply based off of the letters she wrote to excuse his absences from school. (laughs) And I just chuckled when I read that because I thought, how do you even make that beautiful? He was sick. He couldn't make it today. But to write it in such a way that this principal says, this is clearly where this writer gets his talent from. So that was a moment that just made me smile. Other moments of joy are just thinking about these little boys, you know, these mothers giving birth to all their children. Um, But of course, their other children aren't as documented. So you can't quite get into those moments as deeply. But when they're holding that boy for the first time, and just imagining what's possible in the world for them. And it's a reminder that that joy is also a revolutionary radical act that you are not going to be defined or limited by the hatred. And instead, you're going to profess this love and this joy of our life. And that's beautiful. And it's something that we really have to continue to highlight. You talked about hidden figures and the warmth of other suns being an influence on this specific book. But who are some of your literary influences? There's too many. Alice Walker, certainly, for for many different reasons, of course, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens is quoted throughout the book. But the ways in which she reclaimed Zora Neale Hurston for all of us, without her research, we would have thought very differently about this genius. So that was inspiring for me, certainly. Of course, who I already mentioned, Isabel Wilkerson, Margot Lee Shetterly. Everyone probably says this, but Audre Lorde, who isn't inspired by Audre Lorde, but just what she is able to do and challenge very specifically for me as someone with a PhD. And, you know, I'm an academic in that kind of sense, but she changes who gets to be an academic and who gets to be taken seriously in the academy and how you take from the academy to help 
beyond the ivory tower. There's obviously a lot of different reasons why we might be inspired by Audre Lorde, but that's a very specific one for me. There are others, but I think I'll keep it to that list. <laughs> a really good list. <laughs> it's a really terrific list of writers. What do you want people to know about the three mothers, the women themselves, the book, your research? I want them to know their names. It's a really simple thing, but by knowing their names and knowing even a little bit about their stories, we are challenging the erasure of them, but also the erasure of us today. It's something that comes up in a very important book in Black Feminist Theory, which is Some of Us Are Brave, uh, where they talk about how studying Black women and having Black feminist studies, for instance, is not only about studying our history, but it's about allowing us to survive today. I'm paraphrasing, that's not a direct quote, but the sentiment of we are doing this and we're reclaiming their stories, not only for them, but for us. So just knowing their names and knowing what they stood for, knowing what they were able to do long before their sons were even thoughts in their minds also reminds us that we are connected to this movement still. We are connected to them. We are connected to their sons. And it's a strategy of oppression to make us think that because the sons were murdered or in James Baldwin's case, he passed before his time, that the movement ended at that point. That's just simply not true. So when you know that they were young boys who were actually inspired and motivated by their own family history and the cities that raised them and the places that they walked around every day and the people they saw, then you also realize we are a continuation of that. They weren't just some individual that popped out of nowhere and were here for this limited amount of time and then we lost them. Instead, it's they were connected. They were rooted in families and places. And we are connected and rooted with them as well. That's such a beautiful sentiment. But I'm wondering, is there anything we missed? We are sort of specifically staying away from some things so folks can discover them as they read for themselves. Yeah. The important point also of how recent this history is. It is not a part of ancient history. These women are, I'll give you the timeline of their lives. I think this is the other thing I realize quite often is I know when they were born, when they passed, but a lot of people don't. And so they're talking about, you know, these like women from so long ago and the things they had to deal with from so long ago. And all of them, first of all, were born within five years of each other. Their famous sons were born within five years of each other. So the intersections in their lives are actually happening at the same time. The book goes through this chronological order, but Bernice Baldwin, for example, doesn't pass away until 1999. And I often say, you know, she overlaps in her life on one end with Harriet Tubman, who passed away, I want to say 1914. Bernice was born, like I said, 1902. And then she doesn't pass away, Bernice, until 1999. And I was born in 1992. So to have somebody who overlaps in history with both Harriet Tubman, as well as me, a 29-year-old, you got to understand this is recent history. It's not ancient. So the things that apply to them are very, very relevant to where we are right now. And it just brings me to another point of why I even started the book with George Floyd's final words. I want readers to know as they're going through each chapter, this is not just for us to say, how interesting, now we know three more people. It's for us to say, what can we do now that we know their stories? What can we learn from them? What are they still teaching us? 
It's not like there's any one characteristic that we ascribe to each individual mother, but there are larger points that come out of their experience. As you mentioned before, they all had lives before they became moms. Mm -hmm. They were great moms, but they had (laughs) lives before they were moms. Yeah. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. And I think it's also to say, you know, the lives that women lead before they become mothers are really crucial in their mothering. It's not they become a completely different person, but instead they're carrying those passions and those talents and those skills into their mothering. And that shouldn't be such a revolutionary thought, but apparently (laughs) it is for many people. But as an example, Little was somebody who stood for Black independence, Black pride, Black self-sufficiency. And she believed in doing that by any means necessary. She was radical. She was someone who wanted to be known by the KKK. And, you know, this was a part of her strategy was that they were aware she was there. She wanted them to be afraid. These are the things that we appreciate Malcolm X so much for, but without acknowledging that it's a direct correlation to who his mother was before she even birthed him, we're missing that key that pieces them together. And similarly with Alberta King, like we said earlier, she believes that Christian faith should always be intertwined with social justice. That if you are somebody who says you're a religious leader, then you must care about the oppressed. You must think about how we make this world better. Um, And that if you're educated, it's a privilege that you use to help others. And she believes in marches and she believes in boycotts, this type of strategy for fighting oppression. It's everything that we love MLK Jr. for. It comes directly from Alberta long before she meets her husband long before she has children. And then thirdly with Burtis, I almost think it's the most obvious with her because her life started in a quite difficult way. Her mother passed away either in childbirth or when Burtis was only a couple weeks old. We just know that her birth certificate has the same month and day as, as her mother's death certificate. But in that moment of darkness, she focuses so much on light and on love and healing. And because she's a writer herself, she wants to help other people find that through her writing. And so she says, I want to help people heal. I want them to let go of their pain and of their hatred. So later, when James Baldwin says he's a witness to the power of light, he's not just saying something beautiful. He's directly quoting his mother. It's a reminder. And I think even for the mothers, especially who are listening to this, we feel such an erasure of our identity that's very real, but an absurd thing for us to feel because it's clear that everything we did long before they were thoughts in our minds is still impacting them now. And and our kids should be grateful for that. (laughs) How long did it take you to write The Three Mothers? It's always hard for me to put a timeline on it, you know, because obviously my undergraduate work led to it as well. My master's work led to it as well. If I'm just counting the PhD work, that's three years, but it feels like that reduces everything that got me to this moment of why I wanted to write this, hopefully a classic in Black feminist theory, as well as um, a book that those who don't care at all about the Academy <laughs> would still enjoy reading it and still go on this journey with me. So three years, if we're speaking technically from, I'm going to write about these three women in particular, but being able to really understand their experiences, I would say it, w- it was a much longer journey than that. Part of why I asked that question is not just curiosity. It's also, I'm wondering what's next for you. 
Oh, I appreciate that. That question makes me so happy because when you're writing your first book, people are sort of like, oh, that's cool. You want to be a writer. (laughs) But once you have your first book out, everyone says, oh, what are you doing next? It's interesting. I don't think a lot of people know this about me, but I write fiction and nonfiction. And I was working on a novel even before I pitched The Three Mothers. And that's actually how I started working with my amazing agent, I'm Julia Cardin. With fiction, it takes a little while longer. You have to have a real perfect fully done thing. And with nonfiction, you write your proposal. So I'm really focusing more now on this novel. I want to get it done at some point and put it out into the world. And it really, it discusses disinformation. It talks about women's rights. Another way of getting people into the conversation around race and gender and equity and why it matters for more of us to be a part of the discussion rather than this be kind of an exclusive thing that we keep in the ivory towers. I think there's a lot of strategies for how to do that. And then also transitioning the three mothers into screen projects, scripted, unscripted. And I'm having fun thinking of the ways in which this work can continue to grow. It would be really excellent to see this on a screen somewhere just to help broaden the audience. I think so too. Yeah. I think it'd be a powerful cast. Can you imagine three amazing Black mothers as well as different interpretations of the sons? Although we've seen that many times, but... But not in the context of their mothers, which I think is really interesting. That seems like an opportunity for a lot of different stories to intersect in some very cool ways. I agree. Anna Malalaika Tubbs, thank you so much for the three mothers. And thank you for joining us on Poured Over. We're really excited for everyone else to meet Louise, Alberta, and Berdas. Thank you so much for having me. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.